Good to see you this morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the elders here at Substance Church. Glad you joined us. Second uh, Timothy chapter three is where we're going to be this morning. We use the ESV version. So uh, if you need a Bible, we always say this, but back in the back, there's some there. Grab one if you need it, keep it. If you don't have one, we'd be uh, delighted to see you do that. If you use a phone or other device, ESV, 2 Timothy 3. Anybody notice anything different this morning? Like nothing? Like, yeah, like whiteboard. Well, that's because the overhead projector burned out a bulb. Just kidding. Some of you think, what's an overhead projector? Uh, uh, we're going to continue on in uh, 2 Timothy this morning. Just a quick update if you will, Paul in prison. Last time he's probably going to get to communicate to his disciple Timothy, who is in Ephesus leading the church and the gospel there. Paul extremely concerned about false teachers, false gospels, and what was taking place. So in urgency, he writes this letter to make sure Timothy continues in gospel endurance, teach the pure, true gospel, because difficulties will come, and you'll see that here in a moment. This morning, I I want you to think about this. You know, all around you, things are happening and are trying to disciple you. Now, that's a church term we use sometimes, but I want you to stop and think. Something is always trying to disciple you, right? If you watch a lot of uh, YouTube videos, there's a message behind that, and it's trying to teach you things, make you think about something. TikTok, Instagram, books, movies, relationships, seminars, things you attend are always trying to influence the way you think and act about things. Timothy is facing the same kind of thing with false teachers. And Paul's saying, this is really important, Timothy. You got to stick to the pure, true gospel. And you might think, well, you know, how much of that stuff happens today, right? Listen to some numbers that I found this week. And it was a survey done by Lifeway Research last year, 2000. 22, and the Gospel Coalition published this. Here's what people in evangelical churches believe. Oh, not like those guys, like evangelical churches like we would claim? Yeah. 58% of those that were interviewed believe that proclaiming Christians believe God accepts the worship of all religions. 58% believe that God is happy to accept the worship of all religions. Sounds strange? Yeah, it is strange, right? I mean, Muslims, those who uh, believe in other faiths that are not true, they think God accepts. Here's another one, big one. 78% believe Jesus is the first and greatest created being by God. 73% believe Jesus was created 
not God. 55% believe everyone sins a little bit, but insist that most people are good by nature. And the last one I will share, it's a long survey, but this one, 53%, more than half, disagree that even the smallest sin deserves God's wrath and eternal punishment and separated from him. Do false teachings and false gospels have an effect? Well, yeah. How do we know that? Well, I just told you. Now to the whiteboard. <laughs> There's something I want to share with you today that I'm going to refer to throughout the sermon that I learned years ago, and I'm sure I learned it from someone else because I'm not that smart. <clears throat> but it stuck with me for a long time. And here it is. A person's beliefs, and what I mean by beliefs, is what you really are convicted is true in your life, creates values in your life. And those values are reflected then in your actions, the way you live. What you believe to be true, right here, create values which then are observable in your actions. Now here's one of the deceptions that we often fall prey to. There's a disconnect between my actions and what I truly believe. There's not. What you believe, what people are telling you and teaching you affect your values and the way you live. Now think about this. What do we most often try to correct in our lives? Beliefs or actions? Actions. And why is that not successful? Because we don't get to the root. And so as we read our passage this morning, um, Paul's laying out for Timothy what the situation in the church looks like, a little bit like I did. So, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, nine verses, ton of stuff. We're going to dig in. Here's what he writes to Timothy, but understand this. Then in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, 
as was that of those two men. Well, again, lots of things to dig into, so stick with me. Um, I'm going to probably give you more than your brain can keep this morning. I'll try not to do that. But as we look at this passage real quick, just a few verses before this, last week, if you were with us, Paul told Timothy, be gentle. Don't get caught up in argumentative situations. Teach the true gospel in hopes that some will repent and escape the clutches of Satan and destiny of hell. Now, he says, but here's what's going to happen. It's almost like he's saying, don't wrongfully think that this is all going to be easy if you just confront with the true gospel. It's not. So this passage starts with that sober reminder that Timothy preached, teach the true gospel in hopes that some will repent, but the truth is most won't. By the way, who is... Timothy talking to as he reads this letter? The church. Who is Paul talking about? People in the church. You know, it'd be easy for us to say, well, that's society. Let's look outside the church. Look how nasty, bad society is. But Paul's talking about people that show up to church every Sunday. Danger, danger, danger. He uses the word last days, and whenever you hear that phrase, here's what the last days mean. It's the time before Jesus' first appearance and his next appearance. They were in the last days. You and I are in the last days. It's not talking about some futuristic thing. It's talking about this period of time until Christ returns and takes his home to be with him and he reestablishes um, all things. So he says, look, the last days, what you're living in, are going to be difficult. And why are they going to be difficult? Because people are not going to accept, people in the church, Timothy, accept the push, the teach, and the encouragement of the pure gospel because it rubs against some things. And so he launches in to this big list in verses 2 through 4. And I want to say this, that as I look at that, it's really just uh, revealing the fruit of false gospels. That's what Paul's saying. Here's the fruit of false gospels. Here's what it looks like in people's lives. Remember, when Jesus confronted religious leaders, what was the thing that he said was most important in all of life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. This list that we're going to look at was not about loving God. Matter of fact, Jesus said, um, you can't have two masters. You can't love one and love another one. You either love one and you hate the other. So you got to love God with everything or you're going to become, listen closely, what this verse identifies, lovers of self. Every one of the things that will be listed here, and every one of the things that we'll talk about that are false gospels, always, always are about you and not God. They prey upon that. So he says, look, within the church, when you preach the gospel, there's going to be difficult times because people are lovers of money. In other words, they place their trust 
in their faith in their possessions over their trust in their faith in God. They'll covet it. They'll worship it. They'll pursue it. They'll be selfish with it. And they'll want to acquire more and more things thinking that that will bring them safety and security in life. He says they'll be proud. They'll be arrogant. They'll be swollen with conceit. Having a life approach that thinks that you're better than other people. That somehow, you know, you puff up and bump your chest and, you know, I'm better than you and I look down on you. And so they fail the ability to see their sin in their own life, but can easily point out the sin in other people's lives. He goes on to say that they're abusive, heartless, slanderous, brutal, treacherous, In other words, they have no concern for other people's and their actions, how they inflict pain on other people and how their attitudes and actions hurt. And they'll do whatever it takes to bring about the actions they deserve. Heartless, abusive, brutal people. He goes on. They're unappeasable, without self-control, reckless, lovers of pleasure. Never satisfied people, always wanting more and more for themselves, having no boundaries in life, pursuing whatever makes them happy at whatever cost. And then he kind of throws a strange one in there, at least for me as I read this list. Disobedient to parents. Like, why'd you drop that in there? Like, what's up with that, Paul? Like, maybe he just didn't want to leave kids out or something. I don't know. He decided well, we better drop in this clause about being disobedient to parents. I think what he was getting at is a general disrespect for people that are in authority or that are older than you. Yeah, like, ah, those are things that used to be true. They're not true now. Disobedience of those that are older and lack wisdom, including parents. Then finally he says, unholy, not lovers of God. That's the summary. They're unholy, not lovers of God. Remember last week we taught about being holy, being set apart for the purposes of serving God, loving God with all we have. And so these people within the pews of the church, Timothy, that you're teaching, these people that you're discipling are going to display this kind of fruit. And that fruit comes from believing false gospels. Let me ask you a question. Do any one of those look like anything Jesus ever taught? I mean, you can't find one in the list, right? Absolutely none of those things look like anything Jesus taught and discipled his followers in. Verses 5 through 8. Without disciple making, people are vulnerable to false gospels and false teaching. Vulnerable. He's speaking about those people in the church, remember? And he says, they'll have an appearance of godliness, but denying the power. In other words, they're the people that look pretty good. 
You know, they know how to wear the right clothes that make them look good. They are the right kind of people that avoid maybe even some places that would be off limits. They're going to be the kind of people that maybe even teach Sunday school. They're going to be the people who go through all the religious motions. But when you look at their life, when they step outside of Sunday, man, they're just as good as anyone else that living by the world's rules. So they have appearance of godliness. Never, though, does he say their pursuit is right, and that's why. Verses 6 and 7, Paul says, These false teachers, their purpose is to draw in and deceive those who are vulnerable. And he uses this example of weak women. Now, he's not intended to beat up on women, so... Any man in here that thinks that's what he's doing, sorry. You know, he's saying here's an example of what happens when you're not being discipled properly and disciple making is not your goal. You're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. And he uses the example of this, weak-willed women, he says. So it must have been a group of ladies that they would have been familiar with who had gone through some difficult times or were involved in some sinful practices, or that were widows or people that the church was trying to help and take care of. But, but the qualifier here that I want you to notice is not the women, is this. They were people, specifically women here, that were always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. We're going to get into that in the application piece. And then he jumps down to verse 8, and he mentions two people, Janus and Jamboree's, which don't show up in your Bibles, by the way. So why would Paul mention those? They would have been mentioned and been familiar because it goes all the way back to the Exodus story when Moses was confronting Pharaoh, and Pharaoh brought out his magicians, if you're familiar with that story, who would all uh, uh, oppose Moses. So Moses would uh, turn the river into blood and they would try to perform a miracle and he would turn the staff into a snake, all those different things. Those, those were the magicians. And so Paul uses these two people to communicate with Timothy another example of what this looks like for false teaching how deceptive they are, what they're trying to do. He's done that with some other people's names so far. And then he goes on to say that they're corrupt in mind and disqualified in the faith. Beliefs determine values which are observable in our actions. Paul says, when we read through this list, we see the actions that come from false gospels. Now stick with me this morning. Verse 9, very quickly, I think is Paul's attempt to say, take a breath, this is discouraging news, Timothy. You're going to do all this and you're going to encounter all these problems. Take heart, I'm still in control. God's, God's got this. And so he kind of gives a little verse of encouragement there. I want to spend the rest of our time on two specific things in applying these verses. So stick with me, if you will. So 
some takeaways for us as Paul has been discipling Timothy all the way through this book so far. Be set apart, set apart in holiness in order to be used of God. Set apart, be able to be used of God. In other words, know the true gospel. Apply the true gospel. Teach others the true gospel. First takeaway for us this morning. Without disciple making, we're vulnerable to deceivers and deceptions. Without disciple making, we're vulnerable to deceivers and deceptions. And the second point is going to connect to this, but we'll get there in a minute. Notice in verse 6 the real danger that's happening. Paul says these false teachers and their teachers and their teaching creep in to capture. The two words, they creep in to capture. The wording used for capture is uh, the wording used for prisoners of war. In other words, I'm going to take the other side, the true gospel side, and try to capture you and hold you captive to this false teaching. They want to form wrong beliefs that lead to wrong values that are observable in the kind of actions that he lists. You know, false gospels are pretty appealing. And we'll get to a few in a minute. Because they kind of seem right and they are enticing to us because of our sinful nature. You know, and false gospels always contain a little bit of truth somewhere. So it's not like it's so easy to say, whoa. No, disciple making is crucial so that we understand and are not taken captive. So let's talk about the true gospel. God saving up people for himself, redeeming them, making, him, making them his people again. We've always taught the gospel here, and we try to do it in these four pieces, but you might be new, so let's just think for a minute about the true gospel. It's about God and his creation. God created you and I, all people, intentionally, we were created by God and we were created for God. The gospel begins with God and us being created for him, not for ourselves. We exist because of God and we are created to have a relationship with God and to live lives that glorify him always. Second piece of the gospel though is us being created people have fallen into sin goes all the way back to the Genesis passage. People turned their attention, Adam and Eve specifically, their attention from this perfect loving relationship with God and started to be enticed by a sinful desire. Second piece of the gospel is understanding that you and I are sinful by nature and by choice. We're sinful in our nature and we sin willingly. I don't desire to glorify God and to serve him with all of my life. That doesn't seem as fun as living for myself and experiencing all the fun I can experience. But because of our sin, we're destined for an eternity of separation in hell. 
But the gospel is good news because the third part is about Jesus and redemption. That God, in his infinite love, decided before time began that he would redeem his people back to himself through his son. Only by Jesus can our broken relationship with God be restored when a person confesses, repents, and returns by trusting Christ and Christ alone. And then the fourth piece of the gospel is restoration. Being restored in relationship to God and continuing to be restored all of life to what God created us to be. And the Holy Spirit is the piece that I want to connect here. So when we confess our sins and repent, God seals our salvation and the Holy Spirit resides in us now, convicting us when we sin, correcting us when we sin, and guiding us in all of life to live for Jesus by reminding us everything he taught and the way he lived. You see, the true gospel is about God, not about us. So the false gospel is just the opposite of this. If there is a God, he would want me to have all the good things that he created. This is what the false gospel deceives in. My life's a blank slate with the potential to do good things. And when we work hard enough, we'll become better people. It's about man who has the potential to be good. Others are always worse than me. I can find murderers and terrible people in life, and so I'm not really that bad in the false gospel. Any wrong I commit is a response to the wrong committed against me. I'm a victim. Life is unfair. So I have to fight to get what I deserve. Redemption is about my pursuit of good and happiness, since I'm not as bad as other people. And if I work hard enough, I'll become a good person. And the goal of life is to be the best version of myself. Heard that before? And then finally, restoration. Living a moral life that seeks to do good is my goal in life. I can fix any issue if I work hard enough. I can become anything I want if I work hard enough. And so being a good influence in my world is the right thing to try and do. Be better than bad people. Have healthy self-esteem and healthy relations. And that will bring happiness to me in my life. That's the false gospel. First one's about who? God. Second one's about me. And it appeals to us, doesn't it? Verse 8 says that these false teachers and the false gospel, they proclaimed came from corrupt minds who tweaked the true gospel. Are there false gospels for us today? Never. How did you get those statistics? They didn't come from true gospels. Let me just give you a quick rundown of some false gospels. 
First, there's one Scott mentioned the first week you preached, the prosperity gospel, which fits into the list. It said that these people were lovers of money. The prosperity gospel is pretty appealing. Prosperity gospel said, God wants me to be healthy and wealthy, and because I'm a Christ follower, I deserve it and he'll give it. The potential is there for me to experience all the good things in life because of God offering them to me. And so lives that pursue material things do so thinking, well, that's not only my source of happiness and joy, but I deserve it from God. What we misunderstand in that false gospel is gospel life brings hardship and suffering. I mean, need I only remind you of the book we're in right now? Paul in prison doesn't even have a coat. He's hoping he gets a coat brought to him. Not much prosperity gospel there for Paul, who's been shipwrecked, beaten, put in prison so many times. He was more faithful than I am, I'm sure, in my faith life. Second, he says, there'll be lovers of self. A second false gospel in our culture is something, this is not my term, I thought it was at first, I thought this makes sense until I researched it, and yeah, somebody else already came up with it. It's called the therapeutic gospel. And um, a lot of well-known people that we respect and read mention and write about the therapeutic gospel. And the therapeutic gospel is off in this. It says that God helps us reach our fullest potential in life if we get in the right relationships and we get the right advice. Our struggles are a result of unfairness in life. And therefore, God becomes kind of like the magic genie that'll fix all the problems in my life. And in order for me to be whole, I pursue the removal of all issues, emotional healing, happiness, healthy self-esteem, and wholeness comes from our problems being removed by God or solved by God. Now that's true. There, there are pieces of this again, right? That, that are good, that are true. But again, the focus is not on God. The focus is on who? Me. And so it like plays at it for us, draws us in. So the focus is on God solving our problems and seeking a trouble-free life. Well, the problem with that is we live in a sinful world with sinful people who are going to do sinful things. By the way, raise your hand, you're one of them. <laughs> my happiness and my wholeness are found in a relationship with God regardless of where I find myself. I love Paul's writings, even back to Philippians, when he's in jail again and people are preaching the gospel, trying to one-up him. He said, people are making me look bad, but I don't care as long as the gospel's preached. God wants to take every situation of our life and use that to redeem and transform my heart into a Christ-likeness. And he does it. And he can do it. 
Third, I'm, by the way, I'm an equal opportunity offender this morning. So I'm just going to keep going. A, a popular false gospel is a political gospel. A political gospel. Here's the political gospel. Uh, we need to place our hopes in movements in our society or political parties in our society or action groups in our society. And the outcome of elections are so important that the answer to the world's problems are only one election away. We just get the right people elected, the world will be just like God wants it to be. Man has the ability to correct the world's problems. Cultural transformation is the goal by activism. Well, what's wrong with the political gospel? Well, if you know anything about your scriptures, you can read through them from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and you see God uses evil people to accomplish his purposes. Makes no sense. He does, though, doesn't he? He uses good kings, bad kings, evil rulers, good rulers to accomplish his purpose. God will always accomplish his purpose. Next one is what I'll call the social gospel. That, that God wants his creation to love others, and by doing so, the world will be the way he intended. Our happiness is found in pursuing life and relationships with other people, deep, loving relationships, and sharing life together. Now, anything wrong with that? Again, each one has a little snippet of, well, that's, that's not a bad thing, right? But what we misunderstand, our faith relationships are intended to center on Christ. Relationships around a reason and a person of Christ, disciple-making relationships that challenge us to live Christ-like lives. In other words, that help us have the right beliefs and the right values and then get lived out in the right kind of actions. Next one. Fits into the category Paul listed as not lovers of good, which I will call the truthless gospel. The truthless gospel. The truthless gospel says, well, there's no absolute truth in the world. And there's no standards that are absolute. Being a genuine follower of my truth is the key. Who's it about again? Me. So follow your truth and then respect the truth of others because there is no absolute truth. God is love and wants everyone to be happy, so your truth is, is valid no matter what it is. Anybody ever heard that? Watch television every day. Salvation is freedom to believe and live as I want with no judgment from others. Equal opportunity offender. That's me this morning. So what do we misunderstand about that? Well, a truthless society breeds chaos, folks. It breeds chaos. God sets the definition of truth. He has the right to establish all rules and all standards because he is holy, he is righteous, 
and he is the creator God. This is his world. And so when Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, he meant it. Well, look at your actions this morning. Use my formula. And we're going to go to the second point here in a moment. You look at your actions, do they reveal gospel-centered beliefs? Ask your spouse. Ask your friends. Ask your parents. Parents, ask your kids. No disconnect between actions and what we actually believe, right? They connect. Second and last point this morning, which isn't as long as the first point. So. Disciple-making should guard against pursuing knowledge over wisdom. I'm going to go back to verse 7 and notice what it said. It says... These women, and I just want to say people, are always pursuing knowledge and never able to arrive at the truth. Now, this is a very significant statement, folks, this morning, because I think it aptly describes the day and age we live in. How much information do we have that's never been available? I mean, it's incredible. And so for far too often, I fear in churches, faith lives are about academic pursuits. Getting more knowledge, getting more knowledge, getting more knowledge. Matter of fact, when I was putting this together this week, I think back over 25 years of being in ministry, a phrase that I have heard, I continue to hear is this, I just want to go deep. I'm not sure what that means, to be honest with you. We say, I just want to go deep in my faith. And you know what I think it means? I want more information. And we even say it in relationships. I just want deeper relationships with those in life that walk with me in my faith. Again, not bad things necessarily, right? But, but they can become very self-centered, they drift us into these false gospels. I was just thinking, in 25 years, I have yet to have anybody come to me and say, would you help me grow in wisdom? Would you help me grow in wisdom? No, but they want to be taken deep. Disciple-making must point us to the person and life of Christ and help us grow into having relationships and community that are all about becoming who Jesus is and doing what Jesus did. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. You know, it doesn't take much accountability to acquire knowledge. I, and, and we do this, and guilty, guilty. Here's a book, read this book, this will be helpful for you. Here's an article, read this article, this will be helpful for you. Listen to this podcast, this will be helpful for you. Doesn't mean that I'm able to take any of that information and turn it into wisdom. 
here's where I think we got off in churches. We misunderstand Matthew 28 in this way. You're familiar with it, the Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's Jesus talking. Guess what we switch? We replace teaching them to obey and call it and teach them. You know what it takes to teach somebody to obey? Relationship, accountability, life on life instruction. Not, here's a book, this will help you, but watch me pray. I'll help you learn how to pray the way I learned how to pray. Watch me share my faith. I'll help you learn how to share your faith. Learn about the gospel and then share it with other people this way. You see the difference? You, you can gain information, man, so easily today by all of the resources we have. But why don't we have enough disciples and disciple makers? Could it be said that maybe the stakes are just too high for people to be a true Timothy? Saying yes to being a Timothy would really mean a relationship with interactions the way Paul was having. Discipling somebody in the ways of Christ so you live with his passions and his priorities in your life. Not learn about it, teaching to obey and living it out. I told you I was an equal opportunity offender this morning. I stepped on every one of our toes, hopefully. Disciples. Disciple making is one of the keys to protecting against false gospels and false teachers. So this morning, I don't know where you are as we went through these things. I'm hoping this will be helpful for you. It's certainly one of the ways you can look at your life and say, hey, I guess maybe my actions reveal I got some issues up here. Well, welcome to the club. We all got issues up here, right? But you know what? When, when you dig into disciple-making relationships with the intent on growing into Christ-likeness, being set apart, listen to me carefully, being set apart for every good work, knowing that you are to be sent with the good news of the gospel, not only transformed by the good news of the gospel, your life will begin to look proper. Maybe have a discussion today with your loved one, your friend, or your neighbor, someone else that's a Christian. Engage on this formula a little bit. Ask yourself what false gospels have crept in that are influencing you. I gave you a short list. There's a whole bunch of others if you want to think long enough. 
True gospels are about God. False gospels are about us. Get on the path of having someone help you pursue wisdom over knowledge. Do it with them. I'm going to pray in just a second. We're going to share in communion. What a perfect time for us to get ready to share in the bread and the cup together to be reminded of the true gospel. Right? I I think it's easy sometimes to just come up, grab the bread, grab the cup, agree mentally, but not think about this true, genuine, pure gospel that's been given to us by Christ, that saved us, that sanctifies us, that sends us. Amen? So it was the night before Jesus would be arrested. He meets with his disciples. He gives them, or he breaks the bread and he gives it to them and says, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. A reminder in the gospel of Christ living and being broken for you and I so we can have eternal life. Then he says, take this cup and drink it. This represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins that remembering this morning the true gospel that only by Christ and by Christ's life, his death and his resurrection are we able to be reunited with God because of his love for you. So as you come, do so with that remembrance. As you come, grab someone with you and take together. As you come, be thankful in heart for this gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning... We come before you and we give you thanks for your true gospel. And that true gospel doesn't produce the kind of fruit that we read about of false gospels. You told us in Galatians 5 that real fruit from a real gospel looks like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness. Those are the things that are produced in our life when the true gospel is not a form of a godliness, but truly has taken root in our hearts. This morning as we come and share and remember the gospel together, may we do it with great thankfulness and great joyfulness And might we do so and maybe set our lives back on track. Maybe there's some who have gotten off track this morning and would be honest and say, yeah, there's some false gospels I have been pulled into. So this morning as we share in this communion, might it be that great reminder of you, Jesus, and your gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.